you remember chapter 34 was a pretty godless chapter. In fact, there's no mention of God whatsoever. It's filled with lust, greed, hatred, envy, murder, and fear. You might want to look back at verse 30 where Jacob says to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites, the Perizzites. Since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me, and I shall be destroyed, my household and I. Jacob at this point is concerned only for one person, and that is himself. His daughter has been raped. His family has been shamed, but he's only concerned about himself, selfish motivations. But they said, should he treat our sister as a harlot? Now, chapter 35, there's a switch. The name of God is mentioned 11 times in this chapter alone. The focus is toward God. God interrupts what Jacob has been into and where Jacob has been, and things begin to change. Not only is God mentioned 11 times directly, but also 11 more times indirectly, God is mentioned by the names that are used. Bethel, Israel, El Bethel, El Shaddai, the Almighty God. The name of God becomes very prominent in this chapter. You also might want to make a note that chapter 35 has been called the first revival in all of the Bible. You know, I, I used to drive by churches and see on their marquee, Revival Build. And scheduled is the time during the week. This Wednesday night, Revival begins at 7 o'clock, ends at 9. Or Revival Week. Revival is something you cannot schedule. There are some God-given elements to it, but you can't just decide, all right, at this very moment, I'm bringing in Revival. It is a process whereby God initiates it. It begins in the hearts of people, and men and women set themselves to prayer and seeking God's face. A man once asked Gypsy Smith, the British revivalist, how to begin a revival. And so Gypsy Smith said, do you have a place where you can pray? The man said, yes, I do. Gypsy said, go home, kneel down on the floor, take a piece of chalk and draw a circle around yourself. And pray that God would begin to revive the inside of that circle. He said, when your prayers have been answered and you yourself are revived by a work of God, then revival is sure to spread into your land. Charles Spurgeon said, if there be but a dozen men in this my church who have set their faces for a revival, we shall surely have it. Of this my heart knows no doubt. Charles Finney was also a revivalist. We mentioned him this morning. He said, Revival is nothing else than a new beginning of obedience to God, a deep repentance, a breaking down of the heart, a getting down into the dust before God with deep humility and a forsaking of sin. So it's nothing that you just schedule. Okay, this Wednesday night we're all going to forsake our sin, get humble, and have a revival. It's something that begins within a person's heart by a work of God, and there's a humility, there's a repentance, and there's a change that begins in one person and spreads toward other people. And it should be said, it's something this country desperately needs. It's seen it before. The time of the Great Awakening, the time of Moody and Finney and some great evangelists. And it wasn't just those evangelists, but great men and women Households, families, cities that were turned upside down, or I should say right side up. They were already upside down for Jesus Christ. I believe that the next few years in the United States, things will get much more desperate than they are right now. I think they're bad now. I think they're really bad right now, but I think they're going to get only worse. I think it's going to get darker and darker before it gets brighter and brighter. Man is bent on a collision course of rebellion against God. But, as tough and as desperate as it gets, it's only greater opportunity for you and I to shine as lights. As we've said many times before, light 
shines more prominently in the darkest places. And as the United States of America gets bleak and dark, and by the way, you will become the enemy. You already are. In God we trust used to be our motto, but we are in a post-Christian era in this country. And evangelical Christians are seen as the stopping blocks. You're the roadblock to progress. You're so close-minded with your family values and your narrow-minded value system. You should spread out, broaden yourself. And as you hold your position, and as you stick out like a sore thumb, God will give you great opportunities to shine. During World War II, it was so black because of the bombings in World War II in Europe that it was said that you could see a man light up a cigarette 11 miles away from an airplane going across Europe. That's how dark it was. It's getting pretty dark, and God will give us the opportunity to shine. Well, in chapter 34, we should say through most of Jacob's life, he has been a failure. He's blown it time and time again. And God keeps calling him back. And so we read in chapter 35, Then God said to Jacob, Arise and go to Bethel. Dwell there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you and you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Let us arise and go up to Bethel. And I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. One of the trademarks of God is that he is so forgiving that he keeps bringing people back to himself even though they have blown it time and time and time again. Somebody once asked me, is God, do you believe in the second chance? I believe in the third, fourth, fifth, 157th, 374th. You have as many chances as you want on this earth. And then it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. You don't get a second chance. There is no purgatory that you get prayed out of where you get a second up to bat. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. But... Until that time, you've got many chances before the Lord. And Jacob, called by God, a man of God, God spoke to him. He had some incredible spiritual experiences, failed over and over again. God kept bringing him back. And now God initiates this revival. And it should be said that revival is always initiated by God. It is not programmed or planned by a mission board who sit in an office and say, Okay, when should revival week be? In fact, revival is often preceded by periods of gross wickedness, as in chapter 34, which provide the opportunity for the light, as we have said, to shine brighter and brighter. But God always is bringing people back to himself. Remember the book of Revelation, the church of Ephesus. Jesus said, remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do your first works. A church that was following him that had gone astray. The word to them was repent. Come back and do your first works over again. There's a principle in the scripture that we should pick up on now because you're going to see it all the way through. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Judges, all the way through the Old and New Testament. That is, God is a principle of restoration. God will do the best for you at whatever level you allow Him to bring you to. God has His plan, His highest for you. God wants you at the ultimate level, seeking God, humble before God, in love with God, seeking His face. That's the level He wants you. And He'll do, he'll do awesome things at that level. Unfortunately, as human beings, we fail. We sin. And we take second, third, or fourth, or whatever best, rather than that highest level. And sometimes there are consequences because of relationships that we have initiated during those times of backsliding. And there are consequences that we pay. Whatever level you are at tonight, God wants to do the absolute best that he can for you. And it takes a surrender. God will not work apart from your will. If you found yourself at level number two or level number three and you're not quite at the highest God wants you to be, God would seek to bring you back 
to the highest level. For again, he said to the church of Ephesus, remember from where you have fallen. Not remember where you are now. But think back to where you were when you once walked with me in intimacy. You've fallen from that position. And God was seeking to bring them back to the highest level. And of course, the only way to find out how far you've fallen is to retrace your steps. To go back and do the first works, as he said. Now notice in chapter, uh, in verse 1, God reminds Jacob of the day of his distress. When he says, go back to Bethel. Now, he hadn't been there since he came back into the land. It's probably been 10 years since he's been back in the land. And he went to Shechem, the place of failure. He didn't go to Bethel. Now God says, get back to the place that you once were when you were in distress. And I delivered you. Make an altar to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. You know, I think it's always good to look back to the time of our distress. Think back. And remember, before you came to Christ, the pit that you lived in. The mud that you wallowed in. Because every now and then, the devil will come and lie to you. And he'll say, you had it good back there, didn't you? You had a lot of friends back there in the world, didn't you, before you came to Christ? Look at all the people that accepted you and loved you. All the friends around you, all the parties you used to go to. That was the life, wasn't it? And he'll catch you at your lowest times. He'll get you nodding. Yeah, you're right. Amen, devil. Good point. Thanks for the encouragement. But he will blind you from the truth. He will not tell you about those times you were so lonely your heart was about to break. He won't tell you the night you woke up in your own vomit after that party. He'll keep all of those memories hidden, but he'll only remind you of some of the highlights, quote-unquote, of the past. God says, Jacob, go back to Bethel, the house of God, the place when you were in deep distress and you called out to me from the bottom of your heart, and I answered you and I delivered you. God did that, of course, with Saul. When Samuel the prophet came to him and Samuel said, Saul, remember when you were small in your own eyes. Before you got so puffed up as being the king of Israel. At one time you were so small and insignificant, so weak. Remember back to that point, Saul, because you have fallen from that place. And you become wise in your own eyes. When you fled from the face of Esau, your brother, and Jacob said to his household. Notice that God speaks to Jacob. Jacob takes leadership of the home and speaks to his family. Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Now think for a moment what Bethel, the house of God, this place that Jacob was to go, meant to Jacob. It was the first place that God revealed himself to Jacob. It was the first place that Jacob realized, God loves me. God's concerned about me. God is in this place and I knew it not. He said, how awesome is this place? And his eyes became illuminated for the first time that there was a God who really was personally concerned about him. And so he's to go back to Bethel, the place where he cried out to God, and no doubt think back to how God has brought him and blessed him all of those years that he's been away and brought him back into the land, even as God promised that he would do. Do you ever stop and look back in your life and take not only spiritual inventory, but just start counting the blessings, start naming them to yourself and think, you know, God's been faithful to me. Can you look back over your life with a heart of thanksgiving? I have met many Christians who, as they look back over their lives, are bitter angry individuals. They felt that God owed them some special favor, some special place that for some reason they didn't attain to. Now they're angry. Now they're bitter. Jacob will go back to Bethel and recount with his family the goodness of God. The last several years that God has been with him. Jacob said to his household, now, Notice what he says, 
first of all, put away your foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves and change your garment. Another element in revival. First of all, revival is often preceded by a time of wickedness. Number two, God initiates times of revival by speaking to the heart of an individual. Number three, revival begins as there is a purification, a releasing of those little things that we have held on to. There's a conviction that comes to our heart and God says, hey, give that up, give that up, surrender that area of your life to me. A total surrender and a commitment unto the Lord. Now remember, Rachel, when they were leaving her father's house, Laban's house from Padanaram and going back into the land of Canaan, she kiped, she ripped off, she stole her father's little gods, little idols, the teraphim, put them in her pouch, roamed across the desert on the way to Canaan, and when Laban stopped them, she sat upon the saddle in her tent, and she didn't get up because she said, I'm sorry, Father, I don't want to show disrespect, but it is my time of the month as a woman, and it would be improper for me to rise at this moment. Uh, I'm just going to stay seated. And so she lied after she ripped off her father's gods. But the point is, she still held on. You know, the past has a way of clinging to us. The habits, the patterns of the past. You might think, oh, they're gone forever. I've given my life to Jesus Christ. But when they are not properly dealt with, they come back to grab a hold of you and to haunt you. Sanctification is a lifelong process. You know, I wish I could, I could say, hey, folks, there's a, there's a plateau that you will eventually reach in your Christian life where it's just no struggle, no problem. The past doesn't haunt you. The sins don't come up and tempt you. You just cruise, man, all the way to heaven. You just put it in neutral and you glide. But I can't tell you that. I've never met a person who's experienced that. Some of the godliest people I've known have had some of the deepest struggles. Victory over their sins, yes. But a struggle, nonetheless. Here's Jacob, a man called by God, united to a wife who is still worshiping idols, still bringing them. God says, get rid of those idols. Put it away. Get rid of that area in your life that you've been holding on to. Now, there's a lot of people who try to do what Rachel is doing. They want to serve foreign gods six days a week and the God, the one true God, one day a week. They have those little areas where they serve, those priorities that are more important than God. And all of a sudden, shifts on Sunday, they've got this other thing happening, the church thing. Oh yeah, go to church. Oh, yeah, grab the Bible. Where is that Bible anyway? All right, it's in the drawer where I put it last Sunday when I came home from church. And living that way, it's odd, but people wonder why when they come to a church service, their worship experience is not meaningful, it's shallow. It's because it has become sporadic rather than consistent. Now, God breaks through with revival. Jacob, go back to the place where I called you, that place of fellowship, Bethel, the house of God. You remember that well, Jacob. When you do it, before you do it, you put away the false gods. Take them out of your household. Now, there's an important lesson in that because when you turn to God, it's a two-fold turning. You just don't turn to God and remain in your sin. There is a repentance of the sin, a turning from sin, and then a turning to God. It's twofold. You don't say, oh yes, uh, God, He's important. I should add Him to my life. I've got a lot of other cool things in my life. I've got the health club. Um, belong to the Rotary Club. Um, I give to charities. Oh, and God. Yeah, I'll add that to my life as well. No, before and as you turn to God, there is first a forsaking of the past, a forsaking of all that you have held dear that is not of God up to that point, and you turn completely over to Him. Jacob, put away the foreign gods. Question before we move on. Why do people seem to gravitate 
toward visible images of God, toward idols. It seems very much a part of human nature to want to have something that reminds them of God. And that's because a statue, an idol, a painting, or whatever is tangible. They can relate to it. It's hard to relate to an invisible person and have a relationship with someone who's totally not palatable with the senses. And so when I see an image and I see a smile on the face, oh, that reminds me of you. Oh, there's a little statue. Oh, that's... But an idol is always inadequate because it lowers the character of God. No statue, no painting, no figure, no representation can adequately capture the glory and the essence of God. So it always portrays a God who is less than He really is. And so God told the children of Israel, when you get into the land, don't make graven images. And of course, the children of Israel didn't follow God's command. They followed some of the Baals. They worshipped at the poles of the Ashtoreths. They even took one of their own sacred relics and began to worship it. Remember in the wilderness, in the book of Numbers, when they started complaining, and God sent snakes out there to bite them, and they started kicking the bucket by the hundreds and thousands. God said, Moses, take a pole and put a brass serpent on it and hold it up so that when people look at the brass serpent, they will not die, they will live. And it worked. As the people from afar looked at that brass serpent, they were completely physically healed. And they walked away unscathed. Which became prophetic of Jesus Christ. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the Son of Man will also be lifted up. Speaking of the cross. Later on in Israel's history, they found that old relic. And they brought it out and they started worshiping it. Until one of God's representatives came by, took it, smashed it down and said, This is simply Nehushtan. It is a thing of brass. You have taken a relic from the past and you've worshipped it and ascribed it worth, but that does not capture the glory of God. Put away the images, Jacob. Throw away the idols. And then he says, Purify yourselves and change your garments. Now, again, there's a spiritual application of revival here. You put away the past and you change your clothes. As the scripture says, you put off the old man and you put on the new man, created in righteousness. The new clothes, the new uniform that God has provided in His righteousness. What does that mean? It means a confession of sins. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just like you take a bath. You get dirty, you take a bath, you put on deodorant. Because if you don't, people around you will know that you haven't and you will repel them by your odor. There's a lot of spiritual body odor within the church. Lives that have not been brought under the cross for cleansing, forgiveness, purification, putting off of the old man and putting on the new man. Now in verse 3, he said, Then let us arise, Jacob says, and go to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. Now he, he thought back to the time when God appeared to him and he saw those angels cruising up and down that ladder. Remember the story? And he said to God, something that's really not that great. He said, Now God... If, you be, if you're with me, and you take care of me in my sojourn in the foreign land, if you take care of me, I promise you when I come back, I'll serve you. And God did that. God took care of him. And now he's back. And he's remembering all the years that God has taken care of him. I'm sure he probably remembered the wasted years of his life as well. You know, Jacob moved forward at many points in his life, and many times he moved backwards or to the side. He really wasn't making progress. Any years that are spent outside of the direction of God are wasted years. They're shabby years. That's why we always have to come back to Bethel, come back to the place 
that high point where you started walking in the intimacy of God. And if you leave that place and you move laterally or backwards, you can't move ahead till you go back to Bethel, the place where God revealed himself to you, where you started from. Wasted years, I think, of the children of Israel. God calls them out of Egypt. God says, I have a land for you to inhabit. And so they come to the border of the promised land and spies are sent out. And most of the spies say, forget it, we're toast. There's giants in the land, we're dead. Joshua and Caleb, two of the spies said, they're bread for us. God has given us the land, let's march and take it. Well, people believe the bad report. And because they believe the bad report, they wandered for how many years? Forty wasted, devastating years. And they had to come back again to that place of re-entry into the land 40 years later. Wasted years. Jacob's remembering. God was taking care of me. I've been delivered from a terrible past. And he comes back now to Bethel. Or at least he commands his family to do it. In verse 4, so they gave Jacob all of the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears at that time symbols of idol worship. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. And they journeyed. I like this. The terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them. And they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Now, Jacob was always afraid that somebody was after him. Somebody was going to cream him. He was afraid of Laban as Laban was chasing him from Padanaram as he was moving toward Canaan. When he was going to meet his brother Esau, he thought, oh no, 400 men are coming after me. I better send some of these expendable ones ahead of me in case they kill the first bunch of them. I can escape with my loved ones. Always afraid that somebody was after him. Now the terror of God has fallen upon the enemies. There's a principle in the scripture, by the way, when a man's ways please the Lord, God makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. They weren't afraid of Jacob. They were afraid of the God of Jacob. The terror of God had fallen upon them. I love the story of Jonah, not only for the humorous applications that it provides, but the fact that as Jonah was in the boat with the sailors, and they said, hey, who are you, man? Where are you from? What's your occupation? He said, I'm a prophet of God. I come from the land of Israel, and I'm his servant, and I disobeyed him. And they went... They, they, at that point, became visibly terrified, the scripture tells us. And they rebuked him. Why have you done that? We've heard about this God. This God had a reputation for having cities fall down flat, seas open up and swallow enemies. You bummed him out and you're on our boat? It's an awesome, terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The terror of God fell upon the enemies of Jacob as he's going through there. Why? Because now he's in right relationship with God. He's not fighting himself. He's not struggling for his own um, self-identification. God is doing it for him. He's right with God. He's going back to Bethel, putting away the idols. And God is going for it. Verse 5, And they journeyed. The terror of God was upon the cities. I already read that. Verse 6. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there. I like this. He called the place El Bethel. Because their God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Remember what he called it first. He called it Bethel, the house of God. Because he said... The Lord is in this place. And he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than Bethel, the house of God. Comes back the second time. And he's less concerned about the place than the God of the place. So he renames it. God of the house of God. El Bethel. Now that's growth. That's growth. He's less concerned about people, places, events... He's more concerned about God himself. That's a mark of maturity, by the way. At first, when you're a young Christian, you're really concerned about 
people, what they think of you, certain important people, even certain important spiritual people, the more you walk and grow with the Lord, you find that those people aren't as important in their opinions of you as what God's opinion of you is. You're more concerned about God Himself. I've told you the lesson I learned when I first went over to Israel. And I expected that in that place, God was going to reveal Himself to me. Who the Garden of Gethsemane. Got to feel tingles. Didn't feel tingles. Thought at the garden tomb, this is going to happen. It didn't work. God is the same. Jesus Christ is the same. Yesterday, today, forever, in Jerusalem, in Albuquerque, in California, in New York. Doesn't matter. Jacob now is concerned about God. This is God, the house of God. El Bethel. Because God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. She was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name of it was called Alon Bachut, the oak of the tree of the weeping. As great a chapter as chapter 35 is, there are three deaths in one chapter. God is mentioned 22 times, but there's three deaths that are mentioned. So it's a place of weeping. Now, Deborah is a link to Jacob's past. It reminds him of his mother, Rebecca, because that was her nurse. Now she comes. Rebecca, no doubt, is already dead. Deborah finds out where Jacob is, goes to Bethel. It is there that she dies. And at that point, another link to his past is severed. And more and more, the strings that held him back, that identified him, are dying away, and he'll be his own man before God. There will be a maturity that arises because of this. And then God appeared to Jacob again. When he came from Padan Aram, and he blessed him, and God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. And so he called his name Israel. Now again, God gives him the same revelation that he gave him before. When he was wrestling with the man of God. Or I should say when God was wrestling with Jacob to get him to that place of surrender. God said, I'm not going to call you Jacob, heel catcher, conniver anymore. You're going to be called a prince or one who fights victoriously with God. There's a name change, which indicates a personality change. Now God appears to him again. This seems to be the last time in the book of Genesis that an event exactly like this takes place, where it is said, God appeared to him. God appeared to Abraham. God appears to Jacob. Later on, we'll read about Joseph. Walked close with God, lived in obedience to God, but God did not, it says, appear to him like he did to Jacob. But God speaks to Joseph now through dreams. And you'll see that revelation will differ throughout the New Testament on into the New Testament. Old into the New. Until you get to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, you don't have the Old Testament prophets like you had during the time of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Though there is a gift of prophecy. Prophets are not the same like they were in Isaiah's day. Because in the book of Hebrews it tells us God in times past spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us once and for all through his only, his own dear son, Jesus Christ, whom he made heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. In other words, God has everything he wants to say in Jesus Christ and revealed in this book. There's no new revelation. Skip, are you saying God doesn't speak anymore? Oh, he surely does speak. Does he speak through prophecy today? You bet you. But it will never be new in that it would contradict this book or add anything different than what this book has already stated. Everything God has wanted to say, he has said here. I find it interesting that the second time God appears to Jacob, he tells him something he already knew. It wasn't a new revelation. Jacob could have just as well stood there and said, God, you're repeating yourself. You already told me this. I already know my name's changed. You know, I found that there's a lot of Christians 
who are only interested in new revelations. Some new rhema. Something spoken. It's never been there before, never revealed before. But the Bible says in the book of Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it and then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. I don't think we need new revelations. What we need is new applications of old revelations. Obeying what God has already said. Do you think God has any more to say to you till you have finished obeying all this? And can anyone here tonight say, I've done it all? I can't. Well, God, tell me something different and new. Why? You haven't, you haven't finished with plan A. Now, there will come a time when you won't need Bible studies. You won't come to church and you won't open to the book of Genesis or Leviticus or Matthew or 1 John. You'll be in the presence of Jesus. The living word, face to face, and you will be changed into the same image. But until then, we must go back over and over and over the principles that are written in this book. Peter said, as long as I'm in this body, though you already know these things, I'm going to tell them again and again and again. When Jesus revealed himself to the two on the road to Emmaus, how did he do it? Did he come with some new revelation? No. Beginning at Moses and all of the prophets, he spoke all things concerning himself in the scriptures. They were Jewish. They'd already heard those things from birth. But he made a new application of the old revelation. Here again, Jacob hears from God. And it's something that he's heard before. Verse uh, 11. God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. Imagine telling that to a guy who was in the last years of his life. He's had his kids. He's old at this point. He's well over 100. Be fruitful, multiply. But he's speaking about his descendants, the same kind of promise that God gave to Abraham. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and your descendants after you I give this land. God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. Just a side note. Often you will see a reference to the land that God gives a group of descendants called Israel. It begins with Abraham. It says, Abraham, I have a land, I have a promise. It's going to be to your son Isaac, not Ishmael. Though I love Ishmael. I'm not knocking Ishmael. I've got plans for him as well. Great nations will come from Ishmael. My covenant of the land of Canaan will go to Isaac exclusively in his descendants. Isaac has two sons. Jacob and Esau. God said, nope, it's not going to go to Esau. The blessing will go to the younger Jacob. The older will serve the younger. Though I'm going to bless Esau, I love Esau. He's a great guy. I have nothing against him. Nations will come out of him. Jacob is the lineage that will hold the exclusive rights to the land called Israel. And his 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. But God also underscored the idea that it is God's land. It belongs to God, and they are the ones to take care of it. I know there is a lot of talk today over in Israel, and it hasn't been settled, and I don't see how it will be settled soon, as to whose right it is to the land called the West Bank, or East Jerusalem, or West Jerusalem, or the entire land itself. Now, Yasser Arafat and the PLO have stated time and time again that they will settle for nothing less than the total annihilation of the nation known as Israel. They will not be satisfied till they are obliviated into the Mediterranean Sea. They have said that. They say, we were here first. It belongs to the Palestinian people. All right. Let's go back further. Before the Palestinian people had it, who did it belong to? 
you got to go back to the times of the Crusaders, times of the Turks. And you go all the way back to the Old Testament where God said, it belongs to me. It's my land. It doesn't belong to you or you or you. It's my land. But God has given ship over to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Is it because they're better than anyone else? <laughs> History bears out just the opposite. In many ways, they were worse than anyone else. And I believe God chose them to demonstrate that God is a God of grace. And God will bless anyone who will receive Him. After all of the mistakes they made, God still had a plan for this nation. That's something that we'll develop later on. I can step on some toes with that one, so I'll quickly move through. Verse 13. Went up from him in the place where he talked with him, and so Jacob set a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured spring on it, and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him Bethel, referring to the first time. This is the first mention in this verse of what's called the drink offering. He poured out a drink offering. If you read through the Old Testament, especially in Leviticus, where the five offerings of Israel are given, there's no mention of a drink offering. It is an offering that no doubt predated the time of Moses and the law. It's basically where you take a liquid, it becomes a libation. You don't drink it, you pour it out completely on the ground. It speaks of a total consecration or a dedication unto God. In some sense, it is prophetic of Jesus Christ. In another sense, it's indicative of our lives and how they should be before God. Prophetically, it speaks of Jesus. For David refers to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in the future, where he says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint, my heart is like wax. Isaiah, speaking of the future, said, He poured out his soul into death. But then Paul used the same figure to speak of himself when he wrote to Timothy. And right before his death, he said, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. What he was saying is that I've lived my whole life poured out for God, and now I'm going to pour it out to the very last drop. And die a martyr's death. And in the same passage, he said, There is now laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord will give to me on that day. Verse 16, they journeyed from Bethel. And when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. And it came to pass... When she was in hard labor, that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. I remember when my wife was pregnant with Nathan, and we went to these interesting classes called Lamaze classes. And I was really up for it. I thought, okay, man, I'm going to go every one of them. I'm going to get this thing down. I'm going to learn it. I, I devoted myself. I'm going to learn the, the, the whole thing. I had it memorized. Now, I, I don't want to... Uh, I'm convinced that uh, at that point, women are not responsible for their actions. <laughs> Certainly, they don't remember fully what they're doing during that time. Lenya still does not remember to this day the fact that she hit me right in the mouth. <laughs> now, blow! <laughs> so I stopped. I can take a hint. Soon after she had Nathan. The labor was hard. It's about to cost her her entire life. She's going to die on this one. The child will be spared. But the one that he loved, Rachel, is about to be killed. Now this is one of his, the hardest days of his life. Actually, it's a bittersweet kind of an experience. On one hand, the girl that he fell in love with is dying. But another son is being born into his life from the one that he loves, just like Joseph was born from her a womb a few years before. Think back to the time when Rachel was that well and Jacob spotted her. 
immediately he fell in love with her. It was love at first sight. He walked over to her, kissed her, and started weeping. He worked seven years for this gal. Seven years for Uncle Laban to get this character, to get her as, as wife. He pulled a switcheroni, of course, a switcheroni on their uh, wedding night and gave him the oldest, Leah, instead of Rachel. And so he worked seven more years, 14 years total, and the Bible says they seem but a day unto him because of the love that he had for her. Such an intense love. Loved her intensely. And now she's dead. She's a, we haven't got to that part, but she's about to die and deliver a son. I don't want to give it away before we get into it, but I guess I already did. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died. There it is. That she called his name Ben-Oni, or son of my sorrow, indicative of the experience of birth. But his father called him Ben-Yamin, Benjamin, son of my right hand. And so Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. A couple things before we move on. This is the first mention of Bethlehem in the scripture. The word Bethlehem comes from two Hebrew words, bet, which means what by now? Beth? House. Just like Bethel, house of God. Beth means house. Lechem is Hebrew for bread. Bet Lechem is house of bread. It was called the House of Bread. It's five miles south of Jerusalem because it was the place where wheat was grown. Thresh, threshing floors were atop the hills and down in the valleys were the vast wheat fields. Where they, it, they've grown them for years. They've grown wheat for years there. To this day, if you go, you'll still see people threshing their wheat, harvesting it out in Bethlehem. The House of Bread. It was the breadbasket of Israel. It was the place where Naomi lived where later on Ruth goes back and gleans through the fields of Boaz near Bethlehem. It's the place where David was from. It was also the place where Jesus Christ was born. And what a fitting title, the house of bread, because Jesus was the bread of life. In fact, in John 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Moses did not give your forefathers bread to eat in the wilderness but my Father will give you the true bread which comes down from heaven. And whoever eats of me or partakes of me will never hunger. The house of bread, the bread of life was born there. So it becomes very uh, important as we go into the scripture later on. She dies there. They bury her along the road. If you go to Israel with us, we will show you not only Bethlehem and will not only take you down into the fields of wheat, show you all these places, but we'll show you where supposedly Rachel's tomb is still indicated along the road to Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on the grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. And Israel, or Jacob, journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the of Eder. And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. A couple words about Benjamin, his birth. It's been pointed out, some of you may even have notes in it in your study Bibles, that the two names given speak of the dual character in ministry of Jesus Christ. In one sense, Jesus was Ben-Oni, the son of my sorrow. Because he was given as an offering for the sin of the world. And God placed all of the sins upon Jesus Christ. And he took them upon himself at the cross. He became the son of God's sorrow. And also, for that matter, of Mary's sorrow. For remember when Jesus was born and brought him into the temple. And Simeon said, a sword shall pierce your own heart also. But in the other sense, he was the son of God's right hand. For he sits at the right hand of God, victorious over death, victorious rising from the dead. So he fulfills sort of both of those characteristics. Now, Reuben, the oldest son, goes in to Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. And the sons of Jacob were twelve. The son of Leah, sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservants, were Dan, Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padanaram. 
Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, Hebron. Oh, it says, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. Now the days of Isaac were a hundred and eighty years. Hey man, it's time to go at that point. Wish for a good long life? He had it. So Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days. Again, what did he die of? Full of days. He had enough. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Now, back to verse 22. When Reuben came in to his father's concubine, it means that he had sexual relationships with her. What he was probably trying to do is usurp the family authority by taking to himself this concubine and taking the reins of leadership by demonstrating that, hey, that he's going to be in charge at this point. His father's getting old. Uh, Isaac is still alive, but he's old. Jacob uh, is getting toward the end of his days. And uh, no doubt he's trying to replace his father as patriarch of the family. Because of this, the rights of the firstborn are no longer belonging to Reuben, who is the firstborn. They get passed down. If you read Genesis chapter 49, which we'll get to in several weeks from now, as Jacob brings all of his sons around him in his death, he gathers his sons and he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, the excellence of power, but unstable as water. You shall not excel, because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. He went up to my couch. On his father's deathbed, his sin, yet unconfessed, was made a public spectacle before all of his brothers at that point. Now what's interesting in verse 29 is that he died and was gathered to his people. He died when he was 180 years. Do you remember way back in chapter 27? The same character was afraid that he was about to die. He you know, I'm about to die and I tell you what, he said, I'd like you to go out and get me some savory food so I can bless you before I die. It could be that he really thought he was going to die or he was just hungry and he wanted to figure out a way to get a good meal. So he made his sons feel guilty. Hey, you know, this might be the last meal you feed me. But whatever, he was mistaken about his death. He lasted 43 more years. We don't know when we're going to go. It is appointed unto man once to die. God has an appointment with you. God knows the day of your death. God knows that day, and nothing can stop that day. And when your time's up, as we have repeated quite often, who wants to hang around anyway? When you've done what God has wanted you to do, and you've completed the task, Paul said, I'm poured out as a drink offering. I finished the race. I fought the good fight. I'm ready to go. And it's appointed unto man wants to die. Chapter 36, we're not going to go through it except in brief. I'll read the first eight verses, comment on the rest of the chapter, and we'll close it off tonight. This is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Adah, the daughter of Elan the Hittite, Ahi, oh gee, The daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, Basamath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth, or as Americans would probably say, Nebajoth, but it's Nebaioth. Now Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basimath bore Ruel. And Aholibamah bore Jeush. And on and on and on. Esau, verse 6, took his wives, his sons. Hey, if you're interested in ethnology and anthropology, go for broke on this chapter. Esau took his wives, his sons, the daughters, and the persons of his household, the cattle, and all the animals, and all his goods which he had gained in the land of Canaan, and went into a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. 
and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. Now, verses 1 through 8 list Esau's wives and sons born to him while he was in the land of Canaan. Then there's a shift. Verses 9 through 19 list grandsons and other powerful ones that came while he dwelt in the land of Seir, or Edom, where he eventually ended up. If you look over at verse 20, where it's highlighted, no doubt, in your Bibles, down to verse 30, tell us the seven sons of Seir, the Horite, whose descendants intermarried with the descendants of Esau, and so they're listed. And then verses 40 all the way down to 43, the chiefs that descended from Esau. A couple notes before we go on and leave this chapter in the dust. Next week we'll pick up Joseph, and that's a great story, great several chapters ahead. Esau was a man who despised spiritual things. His genealogy is mentioned. It will now be set aside because he has no more place in the plan of the nation of Israel, that real estate called Israel, and the Messiah for the future. Though God has blessed him, God has made many nations come from him, and uh, that will continue until this present time. God is finished with the genealogy of Esau, and so we move on. It would be wise if in the closing moments we would think about the comparison between Jacob and Esau. Probably no greater contrast between two individuals who were brothers in all of the Bible than Jacob and Esau. Very different from one another, though they had many similarities growing up. They had a spiritual heritage. They had godly family. They had the same roots, same environment. But they went in two entirely different directions. And it's interesting. If you were to take a chart, right, Jacob on the top, Esau on the other top, of, of the other one, and compare the events of their lives and what was going on in Jacob's life and what was going on in Esau's life simultaneously, you'd have two interesting pictures. Esau gets married first. He has lots of kids. They have lots of kids. He gains lots of cattle. And God fulfills the promise to make him a great nation. While he is prospering outwardly, Jacob, his brother, is sort of a refugee serving his uncle Laban under hard labor for seven years and then seven more years. Though God will eventually prosper Jacob, at that time it's tough for him. God's prospering outwardly Esau. Jacob is suffering. Eventually Jacob will come back into the land of Canaan. But he's still a tribe, desert dweller, a Bedouin, who eventually will have to flee the land of Israel, go down to Egypt, because his son Joseph is the prime minister, and they're all dying of a famine, except down in Egypt. Going down to Egypt means that his descendants will spend 400 years as slaves. While all this is happening to Jacob, the kingdom of the Edomites, or Esau and his descendants, becomes one of the strongest nations on the face of the earth. There's hardship and suffering for Jacob, though God does prosper and bless him later on. And over in Edom, Esau and his descendants are prospering greatly. Esau, though outwardly, physically, he had many blessings. Nation, kings, chiefs, descendants that came from him. He made several mistakes. Number one, he sold his birthright for a bowl of chili, lentil soup, pottage. He came in one day, he was hungry, and he said, Man, I'm hungry. I'm hungry for that great soup that you make, Jacob. Jacob said, Tell you what sell me your birthright. And he said, oh, what is my birthright to me? I don't care about my birthright. Now, a birthright meant that he would become the priest and the head of his family and have twice as much, as many possessions as, as younger brother. He didn't care about that. He's hungry. He was a man who lived for the present passion. Second thing he did wrong is marry foreign women, which became a grief to his father and his mother. And he knew that it became a grief to them, and he did it anyway, an act of flagrant disobedience. Jacob and Esau. Jacob, a man who sought spiritual things, though he tried to do it his own way, 
connive for it, cheat for it. Esau, a man who was blatantly a man of the flesh and cared not about spiritual things, just gratifying his own desires. God promised that he would bless both of them, and he blesses even a disobedient person. But in the end, there's a different story. In the end, the kingdom of the Edomites is completely wiped out, though the descendants of Esau remain to this day. But the sons of Jacob have remained. The Messiah has come. The promises are still intact. And there's some lessons of applications as you compare both Jacob and Esau that I think we should just think about as we close. Number one, you should never judge by outward appearances. If you were to judge by purely materialistic blessings, you would say, Jacob was not as blessed as Esau was. Look at Esau, man. He's prospering. Jacob's over there working hard for 14 years. What did he get? A couple wives, concubines, and a bunch of kids. And he couldn't afford any of them. He comes back to the land and has all of this failure. But look at Esau over there. Boy, sheep, cattle, herds, donkeys. Man, he's got it made. Kings, chiefs come out of him. Don't judge by the outward appearance. God always looks at the heart. Also, look over in chapter 36 at verse 38. When Saul died, not the Saul, the king of Israel... Baal Hanan, the son of Achbor, reigned in his place. When Baal Hanan, the son of Achbor, died, Hadar reigned in his place. And the name of the city was Paul. His wife's name was uh, Mehedabel, the daughter of Matred, the daughter of. Gosh, strange names, aren't they? But notice the name Baal in there. Baal is a foreign pagan god. There's 81 names listed in this chapter. Of the 81, only two of the names have the name El, God, in them. He failed to pass on any of the spiritual things he learned in his upbringing to his own family because clearly spiritual things were not in order to him. He could care less about them. And he didn't have anything to pass on to his family. Jacob, on the other hand, in chapter 35 finally becomes the leader of his home and passes on spiritual dictates and principles to his family. Put away the foreign gods. Get rid of the idolatry. We're going to Bethel and we're serving God. And spiritually, Jacob comes way out ahead further than uh, Esau does. So don't judge by outward appearances. Judge by the heart. Second lesson, if you are not moving forward, you're moving backwards. Life is never static. Esau never grew in any of the spiritual upbringing that he had. And because he never grew with it, he became a man of the flesh, completely given over, and later on becomes the object of God's special judgment. The kingdom of Eden is outlined for judgment and wrath in the book of Obadiah. And finally, a lesson from Jacob, because we're not going to read about him quite the same way anymore. We're going to read about Joseph. When God says he's going to do something... He doesn't need you to do it for Him. You don't need to help God out to the extent that you will interfere with His plan. All of the years that Jacob tried to get God's blessing, to get his father's blessing, ended up in failure. It's when he finally just said, I give up, that God appears to him. And God says, I'm changing your name to Israel. Nations will come from you. And God promises all of the things that he wanted to do when he finally let go. You know, one of our problems is that we see what the will of God is and we think that the end justifies the means. Well, God has called me into the ministry. Therefore, I'm going to strategize and plan a church. Or... I know that God has called me to marry a Christian husband. So I'll find the first one that comes along. Hey, are you a Christian? Yeah, great. Well, let's date, get married maybe. Hey, those that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. It's because Jacob pressed so hard for so long 
that he moved laterally and backwards instead of forward. God had to keep bringing him back to Bethel. Keep going back to Bethel. Learn the lesson. Waiting upon God. Renewing your strength. I found a lot of frustrated servants of God running around out there. They feel God has called them to do some great work, and they're out doing some great work for God, burned out, frustrated, they don't see results. I have found that serving the Lord is not a grind. It's like, gosh, you're so busy, you're so busy, it's so tired, how do you do Hey, this is a blast. This is awesome. I feel so much like a spectator watching God carry the football. Go, 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 go. All right, touchdown. I didn't do anything. I get to watch it all. But when you take the work of God and try to do it in the energy of the flesh, you're fried. Burn out, man. Frustrated. You want to quit. Jacob wanted to quit for so long until he finally gives up. And he becomes one who fights victoriously with God. God had a plan and he finally reveals it. This sort of concludes uh, Jacob and Esau. Next we'll find the son of Jacob, Joseph, portrayed in the next part of this book. We go through a whole complete change. We've seen Abraham focused upon, Isaac, Jacob, and now Joseph will be focused upon throughout the remainder of Genesis. Let's bow our heads. Lord, it's really great to know that though there may be failure and even corruption within our lives, that you are the God that continually calls men back to yourself. We think especially of Jacob, who became self-centered, though you revealed yourself to him, but he had backslid in a dramatic way. But you called him to come back to the place where you first spoke to him, the place of repentance, that place of intimacy with you, Bethel place long forgotten by this man. Lord, I'm convinced that many of us tonight are in Shechem still. We've gone by our own designs to a place that you have not called us to go. We feel the consequences. We wonder, why is, is life so bleak? Lord, bring us back to the house of God, Bethel, the place where you first began to work in our hearts, a place of simplicity warmth and intimacy with you, a place of repentance tonight. Lord, I'm convinced that there's believers in this room who in their hearts have gone astray, have turned from you. I pray that you would convince not only of the error of their ways, but the magnitude of your grace and your mercy.